Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Hi there. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I'm proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team on School Struggles. We talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is a part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare which is located in Voorhees, New Jersey. And I'm the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one is The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, www.shutdownlearner.com. And I am very excited to have Mr. James Redford tonight as our guest, and James is the director and co-producer of The Big Picture, Rethinking Dyslexia, and he's got quite the bio, which I'm going to read some of it here. Um, James Redford writes, produces, and directs for film and television. His latest directorial project, Toxic Hot Seat, is a documentary film that examines the possible health dangers of chemical flame retardants currently used in upholstered furniture made in the USA. He is also working again with Karen Pritzker on a new documentary that explores the emerging link between childhood trauma and lifelong health problems and what can be done about it. Mr. Redford produced the film Watershed about the Colorado River and the acclaimed HBO documentary Man vs. Ford. Additionally, James wrote and directed Quality Time, an award-winning short comedy starring Jason Patrick. He recently combined his passion for music and directing in Andane's new music video, Much Too Much. Now, there's a lot more here, but I'm just going to skip to the fun part. James also plays guitar for Olive and the Dirty Martinis, a popular Bay Area (laughs) rock and roll cover band. I'm sorry I can't go and listen to them. He's an avid Uh. surfer, cyclist, and skier, and currently lives in Marin County, California, and to learn more, please visit www.jamesredford.com. So, James, welcome. It's an honor to have you on our show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I, I watched your movie for the second time last night. I saw it. Uh, I was honored to be a part of a panel in May at Ryder 
university, right, college, and, and uh, they were showcasing the film then, so I watched it again recently. It's just a wonderful movie for parents and professionals who uh, are concerned about dyslexia or are, you know, in and around this world. So first question, your your son Dylan, he's a central character in the film, and, and you mentioned the film that he was functionally illiterate as a fourth grader. Can you describe, you know, your experience as a parent coming to terms with his struggles while, you know, while learning to read. What was that like for you? Well, it was interesting uh, to, you know, when he was interviewed and agreed to be interviewed for the movie, um, and, of course, when he agreed to be in the movie, it was uh, a, a pretty, you know, humble effort at the time, being that we we thought we were just going to be making a short clip that, that we would give out to people and, and make available to... We didn't know that it would grow to become something that HBO would want and that would have such broad appeal to people. It's really exciting. But, you know, I mean, he his involvement in the film, you know, I'm not sure what he would have said if, if it had started with, oh, do you know that it's going to be seen internationally and, you know, uh, be embraced so widely, it might have been pretty intimidating for him, you know. So it's been interesting as a father, you know, sort of, and he's handled it well because, you know, with his learning challenges, he's received so much support in his life that the idea that, you know, that by saying the things he did in the movie and by by taking ownership of, of of his situation and speaking frankly about it, that if that could be helpful to other people, then great, because he felt like he was the recipient of a lot of really important help. So he's at peace with it. Um, you know, the the business of being um, sharing a story like that, a highly personal story, um, you know, but it, of course it took some reckoning. But yeah, as his, he's such you know, a, as yeah, his he's such father, um, yeah. watching that interview when it came in, um, I was struck that the thing that stuck out to him as an example of what was challenging to be functionally illiterate was the very same memory that I had, which is that he had, was asked to read to the kindergartners when he was in third grade. And, you know, he came home. And he was honored that his teacher, who knew he was very bright and, you know, had him in kindergarten at a time before his reading challenges were quite as obvious. And now here he was in third grade wanting to, uh, liking his teacher, wanting to honor that request, um, picked a book that he'd sort of memorized by heart. And, um, you know, the next day it was a different book put in his hand. And so it threw a real curveball then, right? Major curveball. And yeah, so yeah. there he was struggling uh, to read this book for kindergartners, and they started to correct him. Um, so that's a really painful thing. And, and, you know, that's just one example among many of what it feels like to, you know, really struggle to read. And, and you know, it was it, it was really hard for him. He was such a highly intelligent boy, like so at you know that it was he was able to use so many of his other skills to sort of work around it um but so that it it even became hard for us to understand how yeah. significant uh the the challenges were initially so it's you know that's that's sort of what i would say about being functionally illiterate and you know 
And then other things as well. I mean, he talked about in the movie you know, something as simple as operating a padlock. I mean, if there's been right. one surprise oh, to me yeah. in making the big picture, mm-hmm. it's, I would say the single most talked about thing has been this issue of struggling to use the padlock. How many people have come up and said, you know, I struggled with that. I yeah. knew something was going yeah. wrong. I didn't know what it was. But now I know, and I mean, it just—I can't believe how much this issue of the, the struggle to use a padlock—it's just like it, yeah. I hear about that more than anything else from but family it's funny you and bring, children. Yeah, it's funny you bring up those two stories because those stories did stand out to me when I was watching the movie. You know, the the deep sense of shame and embarrassment that he felt when he recounted that story about reading to the kindergartners, you know, and, that, and I think that was a common theme that went through many of the people in, that were interviewed in the movie about their sense of cover-up and, the, you know, not wanting to be exposed. So I'd imagine that with the padlock, there's also that, you know, they're new going into middle school or high school and, you know, that no one wants to seem at a total loss or a sense of embarrassment. I, I could see how both of those stories made a big impact on him. Absolutely, you yeah. know, and yeah. and I think you know it it uh, that how uh, the amount you know and, and the amount of uh, the, the, this issue of there being this um, you know the, the, the sort of clash between the higher order thinking and and how much intelligence right. is in the midst of all that. Yeah. In a way, it's a great coping mechanism. In a way, it also can make it hard to diagnose because, you know, and I find right. this just myself, particularly with girls, uh, they tend to be, uh, my direct experience is that girls tend to be a little bit better at at disguising their challenges, yeah. you know? Right, and I so, think that's why they're, they're, in a sense, under-referred because they know how to play the system better. And they have better social skills than the boys. Yeah, much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, get along with people better. You know. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but prior to his fourth grade, he prior to fourth grade, he uh, Dylan had not. You hadn't had formal testing or formal diagnosis conducted. That that's right. And you know, he's 22 now. So you know, you look back at we're talking about the kinds of things that we knew and were happening in the mid 90s. I do think things have, by and large, gotten better in that time. Um, I think uh, at that time, I think there was, if, if there was any prevailing sensibility about how one approaches learning differences, at the time, I think there was a, a sense that you, you shouldn't label things, that each kid is his own person, and that you should just sort of and and it's some of that, of course, recognizing that there is a unique profile to all of us it, it is is a value. But I think at the time, um, my wife and I felt that it really wasn't until the whole thing could be contained and understood under a label that we could say, oh, this is what it is. This is something that is diagnosable. This is something that you can do something about. This is a challenge but it's not an academic death sentence, that the the label of dyslexia, in fact, was a positive thing to us, which is strange because so often labels are destructive. And so often yeah. we fight against labels. And, but yeah, I really struggled with that. 
I, I've really struggled yeah. with that. I'd like to get your perspective. It sounds like I've struggled with that as a as a psychologist on the other side, where parents will come in, and I'm very sensitive, I think, to you know kids' feelings on this, and I wonder, will the label truly help them? And when you're saying that the label, it, it, you used the word in the movie, and now contained, which I think is an interesting way to look at it, right? It contained yeah, it for I you. Think, yeah, I mean, hopefully, what comes, you know, what comes with the label, you got to make sure that what comes with the label is is a true understanding. Because if you just use a label of dyslexic currently, there are a lot of there's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of stereotypes about what being dyslexic means. To a lot of people, dyslexic is just a fancy word for being stupid. Mm-hmm. And it, it couldn't be any further from the truth. Right. But that's probably the single most damaging misconception is that it's just a fancy word for otherwise, you know, a polite way of saying, boy, you know, someone's really not very smart. Um, that's linked, in my opinion, to the way we the way we judge intelligence, particularly, I think, you know, from the 20th century model, which is how fast you read and and how well do you write in terms of punctuation, spelling, and grammar. Right. Um, and those two things are the exactly you know particular things that are, are tend to be difficult for dyslexics. Now some dyslexics struggle more with other aspects, but by and large, um, you know, getting the words right, being able to read them, being able to spell them, um, is the thing that that, that that they struggle with. But you know, I mean, the the whole. The definition for dyslexia is an unexpected difficulty with these things. Right. And the way, the reason unexpected is there is that all other indicators are normal. You know? Right. Smart so, enough. So you know, yeah. people need yeah. people need to understand that dyslexia is a contained situation. That you know, and now as we move into 2014, towards it. And we are now in the middle of trying to absorb the enormity of the digital age and the audiovisual society we now live in. I think that it's particularly um, uh, destructive to define intelligence by how fast you read or how well your spelling, punctuation, grammar, um, punctuation, and grammar work, because what is going to continually be of, of, of value as software and other technologies uh, make those functions less and less important is what kind of original thinking are we capable of and how do we how do we move creativity how do we embrace creativity and how do we continue to use the human capacity for original thought for the better of everybody because yeah, we have you know, a lot I, of I, challenges yeah. coming our way and so in my in my opinion honestly to be Five years old right now, and to receive a diagnosis of dyslexia, there's never been a better time, you know, and I think it's only going to get better, but it needs to be um, understood, and I think the public at large needs to be educated and made more aware. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more, and, and, and much of what I do is strive to have children and parents understand the, the different intelligences. You know, I put out a little 
map out with all the different, you know, uh, visual intelligence and verbal intelligence and all that stuff, and you know, really normalize it for children and families. So it's that it's that it is this concept of, you know, neurological diversity and not, in effect, you know, a disability in that in the way that I think we used to think about it. Yes, I couldn't agree more. What what happened after after the diagnosis and you know you got more on you and your wife kind of got more understanding what what um like what ha- what worked for him what would the thing, what would you say would be the top things that really mattered like in terms of remediation or accommodations like from that point forward you know in a sense to the present day what happened for Dylan what what really uh, worked right well i you know he currently as a twenty two year old um doing well in college um he can now read you know he right. he doesn't read rapidly but he can read effectively for content and can use and and reading is an important tool for him um i wouldn't say reading uh Tolstoy is his number one pleasure in life you know <laughs> But and he would be the yeah. first one to say that that he's really glad he can read and he and he does it and you know it it's not but it will always be somewhat of a of a challenge but I think the key to getting to the point where reading he reading became something he could handle and do effectively in terms of not getting in his way was ultimately all about putting in the time and effort and putting in the elbow grease around uh, uh, slowing down and, and learning um, in multi-sensory way. Now, for for us out here in San Francisco, uh, we embrace Linda Mood Bell, um, which, um, you know, sort of uh, based on the, you know, the model. Oh, gosh, now you'll have to edit this at a later point. There's, there's a... Uh, it's it's slipping my mind. There's a woman that uh, you know that that's it's multisensory um, that a lot of people embrace. If you thought of the word, I'd remember it. But hmm, uh, it's, it's slipping my mind right now. You mean right tied now. into Linda Mood Bell? You mean? Yeah, it's like under it's a it's a it's a way of approaching reading that is sort of was old, been around for a long time that got out of favor for a while. And you mean oh, you mean sort of Bernard or Orton Gillingham or one of those Orton Gillingham? I think. Orton Gillingham. Let me, let me yeah, rephrase sure. that. Yeah, right. I think the principles of Orton Gillingham were really effective in helping Dylan, and they have been for yeah. so many dyslexics that there is an amount of elbow grease. Uh, that, there's a lot of elbow that grease. It involves. You can't get around the yeah. hard work. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. There's a lot of elbow grease. It's a lot of hard work, and it's and it's work over a long period. We use the Linda uh, Orton Gillingham methods at our center, and it, and it's long. It's hard work over a long period of time, and the, and the parents have to be patient, and the child has. But there's a connection there too. The child has to connect with their teacher, with his his or her teacher, so they feel encouraged. I talk a lot about the emotional fuel. I'm sure you saw that with Dylan as well. Absolutely, you know, and and you know, you, 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 there there has there has to be, uh, I think, uh, all of these things you have to be put in the context of this is only a part of your identity. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things we had to wrestle with is, I think there was a time where we got the feeling that we were supposed to be putting um, Dylan into a half a dozen different programs, right. and we were trying to balance 
getting him the help he needed versus letting him be a child with time for play and to yep. you know be able to enjoy his life that yep. he does there's no I, way yeah. around the elbow grease but at the same time you want to make sure that that that's not the entirety of their their existence because you know they yeah, need to start I, to discover because there are things that come easily to Dylan you know yeah and he needs to enjoy the fact that he has plenty of talents that came very easy to him yeah i i think that if if you know if it becomes you know, like you say, I think it's a great way to put it. The elbow grease—you have to put in that kind of time, work over time. The heavy lifting that you have to do with these Orton Gillingham, Lindenwood Bell type of programs. But I will also say to parents, just like you're saying, I'm echoing what your comments were. With that, look—he's got to be a kid. He's got to run around outside, play ball or music with his friends, and you can't make this you know, a, a mission or also he will burn out with, you know, even if he's making gains, he will also burn out at the same time. And that's a delicate balance. It really is. It, it, it's, and every family, you know, will have that balance point is going to be different for each and every kid. And you just have to be uh, cognizant as, as parents as to, you know, what's that particular balance mean for your child? You know, what, what mattered the most for you as parents in this in this journey, so to speak, where you know like I see parents you know uh, prior to to the understanding they're losing their patience with the child often, and there's often tension around the homework did Did you guys find yourselves kind of going, "Oh okay, now we get it and backing up a little bit and kind of being a little bit more i guess supportive and not more but you know more understanding so to speak or patient with him what what mattered for you and your wife most with this well you know i think the diagnosis of dyslexia yeah. and that label it, it you know i think it's my my wife and i feel it is more productive than problematic and that and that's true for the for the kids but it's right. also true for the parents you know because uh, you know i think we certainly know what it felt like to sit down at night um you know, with flashcards and go over basic spelling or basic arithmetic and and drill down, drill down, drill down yeah. and say, okay, he's got it, and then wake up in the morning and he's at breakfast and, oh, just one time before you go off, let's just go over this one more time, and you're back at ground zero. You're back at the starting line. Yeah. And you go, what in the heck? And, you know, it's only human nature to sort of, become a little judgmental or or just sort of what does this mean and and you know maybe he wasn't working maybe he wasn't paying attention maybe this is right. some sort of character issue yeah. maybe it's me yeah. maybe I'm a bad parent yeah. all yeah. of this unproductive thinking that can happen in the be honest about it, we're all trying to do the right job and in you know certainly in our case he was our firstborn what do we know you know right. so you know, we're yeah. just trying to do the right thing, and most yeah. parents will admit that there is always a certain degree of insecurity with being a parent. So for us, um, you know, having a diagnosis is hugely relieving because we could at least apply a certain under. You know, we say, okay, well, now we know yeah. what's going on, so let's deal with it. And you suggested, too, earlier that this also probably stirred up your own Childhood, I'm not having you lie down on the couch right now, but it, it probably stirred yeah, up your own childhood exactly. memories as well, right? Yeah. Where in well, terms you of know, your own um, reading struggle. this idea, you know, certainly I, I'm not specifically dyslexic, um, yeah. but I would say, you know, uh, that it's it's present on both trees of our family, 
Uh, yeah. So Dylan has it on both sides of the family, and um, you know, and got a got a pretty strong dose of it. And what came with that dose at the same time, if you know him now, is he's he's a kid that's gone on to um, play a very important leadership role in the radio station at Middlebury College. Um, he was elected to run the station for two years. He was integral in revamping its online presence and creating yeah. some new programs there. Um, and he is now a fine arts major and has produced a lot of really, really uh, excellent you know, product as as an artist there at Middlebury with a really good DPA and has been invited to do a lot of great things. Yes, I'm sort of sounds like I'm bragging and 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 maybe I am, but you know well, what, what I'm trying <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that um, there's no reason to think that these things are not accessible to dyslexics. And if my wife right. was on the phone, she's been teaching for 26 years. She finds what a lot of people find, which is that. These kids that present with dyslexia and struggle at a young age, they show up later in life as real success stories, in fact, um, particularly if they have an understanding and loving environment at home. And, you know, that, that what they look like in eighth grade is no indication, or fifth grade, no indication of what they're going to look like at 25. Right. And um, she has seen that time and again. Um, but... On a, I would, I think it's important to also say this: that on a broader societal level, you also see a disproportionate amount of dyslexics in the penal system. And right. you know, what's that about? Well, if you don't have a good home environment and you don't have understanding, you don't have support, the kind of support that my son was lucky enough to have, then it can turn, it can work against you. Yeah, and you know, yeah. so I, you know, I think there's no doubt in my mind that there's a lot of untapped potential with dyslexics. But if we don't figure out how to help them learn better in a broad way that that is accessible to all, then you're going to continue to see a disproportionate amount of dyslexics, you know, in juvie or jail or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like you say. It's like Sally Shaywood's. To me, it, it, what you might, makes me think about is that sea of strength concept, where the, the learning disability or the dyslexia is surrounded by a sea of strength. I know she was talking about neurodevelopmental strengths, but I also think of it as family. Like, w what is the child's family strengths? And and I think that what you're saying is again right on the money in the sense that when you having when you're having supportive parents who do understand that to me is the number one thing understand what's going on and, and provide that kind of loving support, then all things can happen, as you're suggesting, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, what I know you're getting closer toward the end of it. Some of the myths, can you want to comment a little bit on that? I know you interviewed Charles Schwab and Richard Branson and some other famous people who had dyslexia. Anything strike you about those interviews and the mythologies that kind of emerged? Well, I think... Um I think the the one that most people talk to is the idea that you know the dyslexics read backwards. Right. Um, I you know everyone says where did that come from? You know because uh, that that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think one of the difficult things is you know we we try to in an artful way sort of represent 
the dyslexic experience in the big picture, as you may remember, there's quite a bit of animation in that film. Yeah. Um, and, but honestly, you know, and we looked at how to deal with that. We had decided. We decided. Well, let's not suggest that the, let, that we're really creating the dyslexic experience. Let's let's refer to the fact that things are. Let's re- let's let's represent that it's challenging, but let's not represent that there's one unique experience. And this is what it looks like. This is what words look like if you're dyslexic. You know, this is what it. This right. is what this experience is, because no one. Ex- there isn't a standardized experience that. Right. Each. You know. You can't really. And so I think, in terms of stereotypes, the idea that it's just one thing, and that oh, everyone reads backwards, or. You know, or you know, they don't read at all, or they, you know, they they can't right. uh, pronounce their own name or whatever. These things, they're 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 just wrong. And I think the other thing um, that was surprising that that there tends to be this idea that dyslexics are quote unquote slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, again, I mean, I think this business of how we judge intelligence. Um, another misleading marker is how glib somebody is verbally. Because there's there's cases right. like my son is highly articulate and highly verbal. So is Richard Branson. So is Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. Right. But there that are plenty of highly highly successful right. dyslexics where the verbal thing is not their forte. Right. But right. they don't struggle so much with spelling, or they don't struggle, you know, that yeah. you know. They, so, you know, I think it's kind of like the I snowflakes think, of dyslexia, right? It's kind of like the snowflakes of dyslexia. You know, each one is different. They're all dyslexics, but there's a snowflake aspect to it, right? That's kind of what you're saying. That that's an excellent, you know, metaphor for it. I think it really is because it, it just we don't like to. I think we all want to put things in a box. We we lead, we live, yeah. you know, busy lives and we want to label, you know, we want we want to just say this is what this is. And I you know, I think I think, you know, it's important to understand that it, it it's a, it it involves certain, you know, neurological um challenges, but that it's going to present as individually as as snowflakes. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, you said so many great points, but I want to capsulize in a sense contain. What what would you say is the most important message you'd like people to come away with after watching your movie? What would you say would be the single most important message to to impart? I would have to say that as a parent, you know, what I would say to other parents, because that's the most direct and personal thing I I can say or even speak to, is that, you know, when Dylan was in third grade and, and functionally illiterate, we felt like his vision, I mean his, let me rephrase that, when he was when he was functionally illiterate in third grade, we had no sense for any sort of future for him. And we had very, frankly, we, we, we had a lot of uncertainties and anxieties about whether or not that future would allow him to feel good about himself, fulfill himself, find find ways of meaningfully moving through the world as an independent adult. I mean, we had so many unanswered questions. Right. And if this film could help parents just understand that they don't have to give up on their dreams for their children, that just because they 
may take longer to, to learn how to read or they may struggle with spelling, if they have a passion for something and they want to do it, they will succeed. And it may some things may be harder because of dyslexia, but sometimes those challenges build character. And that character can actually aid your child in being successful as an adult. It's a great message. It's a great message. It's a great movie. The, you know, the, the, and the movie, I, as I understand it, the, the pic, big picture continues to air on HBO. And what are some other ways that people can see uh, the movie? Can you help us with the that? The good news is that if you go, if you go to www.thebigpicturemovie.com backslash roadshow backslash. Okay you will see that we are about ready to launch a nationwide uh, screening um, roadshow. We'll be appearing okay. in cities all over the country in uh, partnership with a number of other uh, dyslexic organiza- dyslexia organizations as well as uh, uh, Tug uh, Media, which is, which is a company that is you know one of the sort of pioneers in bringing community screenings uh, mm-hmm. to people more accessibly. So... Yeah, that, look at that website. Go on the Facebook okay. page for the Big Picture Movie. There's, it's a great place for parents to go and become a part of it, a really active community. There's so much valuable information on the website as well as the Facebook page. I really encourage everybody to, to go there and check it out. Well, we, we will, and I want to thank you. You know, this was – I feel like I could have gone on for hours with you um, – and I just want to say that you know I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good I could size up kids pretty well having worked with kids for a lot of years now, and I think mm-hmm. your, your son Dylan comes his character comes across um, very, you know you have a lot to be proud of. So before when you thought, thought you were bragging, you should because he looks like an absolutely great kid who has come through. Uh, a lot, and you know the loving support that he received is also came through. So you know, great job, and he's a great kid. And tell him I said hello. <laughs> I will do that, and I appreciate. And um, you know, thanks again for for being a part of school struggles, and I uh, look forward to getting to know you further in the future. I look forward to that as well. You take care. Thanks, James. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.